Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for our uh, much anticipated annual positional ranking slash preview. It's my good buddy Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm excited to be getting back to work. Too much time off in the summer, so it's. Uh, I'm finally ready for hockey season. I feel like I'm more ready than any of the last few years. What's um? Yeah, yeah. Me too. Actually, you know what's funny? I uh, I've really gotten into fantasy football the past couple of years, and so this summer I was like doing so much research on that and doing mock drafts and reading articles about it and, and stuff like that. And then a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, oh crap, I, I should probably be doing this for hockey considering it's my job and considering I, uh, I'm i expected to and paid for my opinions. And so I uh, the past 10 days or so, I've just been trying to read as much as I can and sort of remind myself about as much as I could because like, I was all in on it through the playoffs and then through the free agency and draft. But then like once we hit mid July, you sort of really dial it back and kind of turn it off and start using your brain for other things. And it, it, it's tough to get back into that, into that, uh, you know, peak season mode. Yeah, for sure. And like usually in the summer, I have a big project that I do for sports and this year I wasn't able to, to do that because uh, like the contract was up and we had to renegotiate. So I, I'm less into the, like uh, less fully aware of the deep, data that went on last season you know during the season you kind of are always playing catch up mm-hmm. and I never got a chance to go through like the whole league but uh yeah so we're going to talk more about feelings this time <laughs> <laughs> and uh I'll pr- we'll probably be more wrong than usual but that's okay there, there's other things in life than uh, being right I mean, just, you know, going with gut feelings, that just makes us like all the other uh, media professionals in the industry. So I'm excited. We're going to fit in. I mean, listen, it's with this exercise, I really like doing it because and people seem to enjoy listening to it because, um, you know, everyone loves lists, everyone loves rankings. And we're talking about all the best players in the world. So obviously there's so much to work with, but it really is worth hammering home that 
it's like nitpicking and a lot of it when you get to it's like oh who do i prefer tyler sagan or jack eichel when we're talking about centers a lot of it is sort of like personal preference in terms of playing style and maybe just random anecdotal stuff like clearly if a guy's ranked 15th or he's not on our list and he's actually 20 the 22nd best center in the league there isn't too much like actionable or practical um stuff involved there it's more so just like a fun preseason exercise that we like to do and i think this is what the at least the third maybe even the fourth straight year we've done this yeah i think it might be the fourth Mm -hmm. and yeah, like you said, there isn't a lot of separation once you get past like the top top guys through like the like we're really talking about like the first line guys for every team, right? And once you get past like the super elite guys, there's this whole swath of people who they're not interchangeable, but a lot of it's going to be like what you personally like uh, in a player's game or what you value versus uh, what somebody else values. So yeah, don't, uh, don't get too stressed out as per usual about, uh, the numbers. Let's just talk about the good players. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, we thought that it'd be good to break it up by position as we always do, just because if we did like a top 20 forwards list, for example, um, just because of, uh, the importance of the position and the depth at it, like, I'd say probably 15 of the top 20 would be centers or so, give or take. So we kind of felt like we'd be shortchanging the wingers. So I think for today, let's do top 15 centers and we'll do a bunch of honorable mentions and get into who guys who just missed the cut. And then we'll do top 15 wingers and lump left and right wing together as the uh, pro hockey writers association likes to do, since we don't even know sometimes which one's which. And then <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll do the defensemen in, uh, separately because uh, there's just so much to work with there and it's a whole can of worms in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you want to jump right into it? Yeah, let's do the centers. So let's uh, let's do some honorable mentions or guys that um, you really wanted to jam in there, but just because of the depth of the position, you couldn't do so. And so they were kind of like left uh, uh, on the chopping block or on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I actually had some that like pained me a little bit to leave off, but because we were only doing top 15 this year, you know, and there were some players that took uh, down strides last year and and some players that maybe I just want to see a little bit more of. So I had, uh, you want me to just do like a few through some, yeah, just bounce some names at me and then okay. we'll kind of take them one by one. Yeah. So I had these four guys just narrowly missing my top 15. Uh, the most controversial is probably Mark Shifley. Mm. Uh, I also had Kuznetsov, yep. uh, Matt Barzal and Jonathan Taves, who I think had a phenomenal year last year, but I want to see him do it again. Yeah, my uh, so I, I broke it up into honorable mentions next up and then the top 15. And my next up ones were Mark Shifley, Evgeny Kuznetsov, as you mentioned. Uh, and then I had Logan Couture and Tyler Sagan there. Mm. Yeah, I have Couture and Sagan a little bit lower than, than that group. Okay, that, uh, makes, I, me, that I, makes me feel better because I really, especially with Sagan, I was like thinking so long and hard about it and trying to make it work. But just based on the 15 names that I had ahead of him, I, I couldn't justify it. But like, he's yeah. such a great player. And we saw like, it's funny last year, um, obviously with like the, the owner or, or um, the CEO or whatever, calling them out and calling their play horseshit. And it was like purely just based on the fact that he was leading the league and hitting the post and, and uh, had an uncharacteristically low shooting percentage. And then like, right after that he was like a goal a game for two weeks and it's funny how that works but it kind of reminded us of just like how great of a player he is yeah he's super dynamic i think for for guys like sagan it it comes down to me like center is such an important position and there's so many facets to what makes a great center and he ticks the offensive box but 
that's kind of it right now. He hasn't really pushed play for a few years now. Uh, his defensive game still leaves a lot to be desired. So, like, he would have to be significantly better offensively for me to ignore that. So yeah. I had other guys who are a bit more rounded ahead of him. Well, the tough thing is, and I think I mean, you could basically say the same thing about Mark Scheifele, I imagine, at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, it's weird that, and there's so many concerns about the Winnipeg Jets for this season. Most of them are on the blue line, to be fair. But another one of them for me is, I think this is going to be the first year of Blake Wheeler's mega extension, and he's already well uh, on the wrong side of 30. And Scheifele's uh, quite a bit younger. But those two guys, especially last year, and maybe even the year before, I think, like their underlying numbers um, didn't match up to what we'd expect from them or their pedigree like they especially last year they were actually getting caved in a little bit and and it didn't really make sense now they were so good on the power play and also uh, especially in Shifley's case like he's been such a well above average finisher as a shooter throughout his career that he's one of those guys where he doesn't necessarily need the volume or like his team can get outshot by a little bit because he's probably the combination of Wheeler passing and him shooting is going to generate goals at a higher rate than we'd expect from other players. So like they can get away with that and kind of fudge the numbers a little bit, but you're right. There's like enough red flags there that it's okay to leave him just outside of this list because a lot of the names ahead of him have similar offensive upside without those question marks. Yeah. Shifley is a weird one. Cause like you, you watch him play, he, you listen to him talk. He's clearly a smart guy. He is a student of the game. He makes lots of great plays, but like you said, the the underlying numbers just aren't there. Uh, the Jets are a weird team because they have multiple guys who outperform their ex- expectations and don't drive play. Uh, Wheeler used to, but like you said, wrong side of 30, but also uh, his play has been noticeably degrading over time despite his point production uh, going way up. So his two-way play is suffering. So now that adds Wheeler, Shifley, Line, and Kyle Connor all as guys who can score at ridiculously high rates but don't necessarily uh, drive play. And it's like those guys are valuable, but how many of those guys can you have on one roster and still have success. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to have something else in there to, to stir the drink a little bit. And yeah, that, that worries me for the Jets. But Shifley is a weird one because like, it's not just that he's a dead shot, and he is. It's He is a dead shot from the perimeter. Uh, he scores from the perimeter at the same rate the average forward scores from the high slot. Mm. Like His shooting percentage from the outside over the last three years is three times league average. Over three times. Wow. That, it, it doesn't even make sense, but he's able to do it. I don't know if he's just got a tricky release or like you give him more space and he's got more time to find a spot in the net that's open and he's just insanely accurate. Um, I mean, I think we all know he has a great shot, but it, he's just a weird player in the way that he scores. And, you know, line A is the same, not that we're talking about him, but they both score an abundance of goals from the perimeter. And it, in a way, it allows the Jets to kind of uh, – beat expectations and beat teams that are now highly defensive in and around the goal front. That's like the, where the game is going. So they're able to counter that a little bit by having perimeter scorers, but it's something that you can't really bring yourself to rely on long-term. And yeah, for Shifley, I think he's one of the best goal scorers in the league and one of the best point producers in the league power play unreal, but He's got to push play a little bit more for me to make it into the top 15. Top 20, sure. Yep. Top 15, 
No. Well, and then I had like three other tiers of guys that just missed the cut, but I wanted to give some love to. It was like this sort of um, group of guys who don't have much help or have been on bad teams recently, whether it's, uh, you know, Dylan Larkin or Mika Zabinajad or Nico Hishier. There's like that kind of old guard that I have of Taves, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I'd even lump like Backstrom and Stamkos in there. And then I've got like Matt Barzal, I really struggled with because I think he's a top 50 in talent, but just because of the way he was used last year because of Trot's assist him because of how his production dipped like you couldn't justify putting him in here but he's deserving of at least an honorable mention because of that talent because we've seen him play at such a high level as a rookie and because like i wouldn't be surprised if we're having this conversation next year and we're like holy crap matt Perzal just absolutely exploded the season yeah I, I can definitely see it and like by the the micro stats that i have access to barzal was probably the most dynamic playmaker in the nhl last year mm-hmm. at five on five yep. so you know just anybody who can finish some of his plays off he's going to see a huge jump in assists and his ability to, to attack off the rush and be deceptive and change speeds and beat the defenders is just incredible he there's so much potential there right but it, it's like you said the slightly down season it's tough to bump him all the way into the top 15 right away. So yeah, honorable mention makes sense. Well, those like those playmaking stats and, and you know, his uh, neutral zone ability and how he carries the puck and what he does with it when he's in the offensive zone, like that all checks out by the eye test. You wouldn't even necessarily need the numbers to, it's good to have exactly. to confirm them, but that's what makes it even more sort of puzzling or jarring that you look at the end of the year and he's got like over 50 minutes uh, played at five on five with like Tom Kunakle, Andrew Ladd, Cal Clutterbuck. Uh, there's a few other names there that have no business sharing the ice with Matt Barzal at five on five. And, and that's, what's kind of like frustrating. I know that, you know, he's generally playing with either Bovier or, or Eberly or even Lee, but like, if he had that one, um, sort of like full-time elite running mate that could just convert on all of the space he opens up for them and all the looks that he can create for them. I imagine both his counting stats and our perception of him would change quite dramatically. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, maybe, maybe they uh, they find someone this year to do that. It, it would be super interesting to see that for Long Island. I, I guess, you know, you think Anders Lee is maybe a little bit too slow to keep up? I think so. I think so. Like, it's... Yeah. Um, and, he, yeah, he, at this point of his career and with the sort of uh, profiler type of his game, like, he's probably his best option, but um, it's not an ideal long-term fit, I think, stylistically. Yeah. I'd, I'd still like More to see them address that. Absolutely. Yeah, he's not... I mean, like, he's always been uh, a high-efficiency, sh- high-volume shooter as well, but, like, high-efficiency around the net, one of the best net-front guys in the league, but I'm, I'm speaking more purely as, like, a one-shot trigger man, kind of like what we were just talking about with Shifley and Wheeler and that dynamic. I'd love to see Barzal have his sort of Mark Shifley that can just convert at, like, 16 17% of the looks that that Barzal creates for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, yeah, that would be fun to see. Let's get into your let's let's get into the top fifteen. Then I, I feel like you know we've uh, we've done fifteen minutes here on on the honorable mentions, and, and it's deserved because <laughs> this list is just crazy star studded. But let's let's start getting into it. Give me a give me a fifteen for you. All right, fifteen for me was Nick Backstrom, mm-hmm. who I feel like for some reason people still kind of underestimate, and I don't get it. I think he's fantastic. He's defensively, he's super underrated. I think he's really, really good. Has not to denigrate Ovechkin, but has really helped Ovechkin uh, alleviate some of his defensive concerns over the course of his career. And offensively, man, he, he's still a wizard. Uh, he, he was able to do it without Ovi last year 
for most of the season because uh, Ovi was with Kudusnetsov. I had to take advantage of uh, the new, or not necessarily new, but the rejuvenated ability to attack off the rush that Ovi had. But uh, Backstrom still, once you gain the zone, he's he's incredible. He is. And I guess he uh, gets docked a little bit and unfairly on this list just because like he's been doing it for so long. Whereas you have yeah, some, some young names here where it's like, oh, like this guy just burst on a scene and it is just so recent and so fresh and so young and exciting that we kind of gravitate towards that. Whereas it's like, oh, Baxter's just over here doing the same thing he's done for the past decade and doing it remarkably well. And I, I do love I'm kind of torn because it was great to see him still thrive playing with whatever it was like Oshi and Vrana or whatever when, when Kuznetsov and him switched flip-flopped in the lineup but there is something beautiful about seeing him back with Ovechkin and seeing that chemistry between them just because we've shared so many special moments with him in the past yeah absolutely who do you have for 15 I have Elias Pedersen at 15 Oh man, I should have had him in my honorable mentions. I, for some reason, I blanked on him. Like I said, we're we're rusty, but uh, yeah. that, that's a big oversight. Well, and it, it's tough because uh, you know he's done it for such a short period of time, and I get the concerns about how um, he struggled as the year went along. You know, he he got banged up a little bit, and then the points dried up towards the end of the year. But I just think seeing what he's capable of and. Um, how he does it just in this like it's it's kind of unlike anything we really see around the league where it feels like the game slows down around him and he's just sort of like anticipating plays before the passing lanes even open up or even happen like he like it's like a it's like an NFL quarterback where he's sort of throwing his receiver open where he like throws in where he expects the receiver to wind up being and and so I just love watching him play I think the sky is the absolute limit there's uh, I don't want to buy into the whole uh, best shape of of our of his life narrative in the preseason, but from like a actionable perspective, the, a lot's been made of how he's worked on his first couple steps and sort of se- the working on the separation and being a bit more explosive. And if he adds that to his game along with all the puck skills he has, I get that there's probably more well-rounded players, but I think he's just because he's so flashy, we don't think of him as this way, but he's already shown that he's so reliable in his own zone and doing the little things. And so I think that um, it's a bit of a projection and I don't think it's crazy to have him outside the top 15, but I just felt like from sort of an upside perspective and what we've seen inklings of so far, I wanted to get him on this list. Yeah. And I think not to necessarily crap on the Canucks, but talking about a guy who did things pretty much on his own. And mm-hmm. I know uh, Brock Besser is a great player too, but you know, both of them had injuries. Uh, Elias Patterson's rookie season is super impressive and probably it's considerably more impressive than the overall point totals show because the, the team lacks uh, high end talent. And, you know, they added a little bit more this summer in uh, Michael Ferlin and JT Miller. I wouldn't, maybe not high end talent, but good talent, middle six talent. And uh, hopefully they can, you know, surround him a little bit with a little bit more talent to uh, take advantage of his ability. Cause as a playmaker, he's fantastic as a shooter. He's always in the right area. He gets a shot off quick. Yeah. Adding that explosiveness to his game would be a whole other level. Yeah. And, um, I'm sure he learned quite a bit last year and, and he's going to adapt on that as well. And, and you're right. Furland and JT Miller aren't necessarily world beaters in their own right, but considering sort of what they're replacing, like the net positive there, uh, will help him quite a bit. And, and especially JT Miller as a finisher. So I really, I really like that. And I just think the sky's the limit. Um, let's, 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 let's keep going here. Give me a, give me the next name or two on your list. Yeah, this one's a little bit further down the list than I think a lot of people would have, but I've got Sean Couturier at 14. 
I have at eleven, so I, uh, I I think that's that's sort of the same ballpark. Yeah, it's around the same. I think for me, Couturier, like we all were already knew how good he was defensively from you know the last five seasons, and then they put closure on the wing, and all of a sudden it unlocked this uh, superstar level offensive player in Sean Couturier. Now he's able to like free himself up a little bit and take risks and go uh, lower in the zone. His shot quality skyrocketed like crazy, and you know you add in. The, the Philadelphia Flyers power play is always pretty good. This is a guy who, you know, maybe he was a late bloomer in terms of offense, but he's been good for a long time. And now that the offense has come along, the fully matured player shows up in the top 15. And I feel like it's just impossible to deny him at this point. I mean, I feel like uh, what more does he have to do at this point to convince people of that? Um, yeah. Like, it, my colleagues at uh, at ESPN just recently released their top fifty player list, and I actually thought it was a a, a very um, shrewdly done compared to some of the other lists you do, where it's just like based on name brand value and just jamming names in there based on random stuff. But Couturier was left off the top fifty, and and um, I was that was kind of like the most obvious name that stuck out to me as a glaring omission, and I, and I was just making the point of like. I mean, I think he played the sixth most most minutes uh, of any forward last year. He had insane uh, net positive impacts on goal share, expected goal share, shot share for his team at 5-on-5. He's playing all the tough minutes. He's one of the best players in terms of penalty differential, which is amazing considering the competition he faces. And I think the most important part here, and you see Claude Giroux listed above him on all of these lists, and it's like, yeah, health is obviously great for Giroux. He was dealing with quite, quite a few hip issues before, and that certainly helps. But he almost like single-handedly rejuvenated Giroud's career over the past two mm-hmm. years when it felt like Giroud was really um, trending downwards and having Couturier basically be like, I got this, you can play on the wing and not have to worry about as many as the defensive responsibilities. Like That is such a massive checkmark in his favor for both uh, this list and just in general. Right, and I feel like it's entirely fair for people to say that like Giroux is the offensive driver between the two of them. Right. But like I mentioned that Giroux's presence on the line allows Couturier to take a few more risks, but like the opposite is true times 10. You know, and I, I think I have Giroux slightly above uh, Couturier just because of, or do I? Do I on this list? Maybe oh, not. Well, you Maybe can't have him on this list. He's a winger. That's right. That's right. I was like, where is he on the center's list? Oh, no, there he is on the winger's list. Yeah, so good. I'm not uh, contradicting myself. That's good. (laughs) So, yeah, I I have Giroux, like, he's an offensive driver like crazy. But, yeah, Couturier allows him to take so many more risks. And it's it's nice to see them feed off of each other, you know, like they can cover for each other. Drew knows the center job. So you, you make those read and reacts much better. And I, I didn't think that that shift to the wing was going to be nearly as successful for Drew as it has been. Cause usually centers kind of pout when they're moved off right. the wing, but he took it. And I think all the credit in the world to him and uh, all the credit in the world to Sean Couturier for taking advantage of it and uh, becoming the player that he was kind of expected to be when he was drafted. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's a great point. Drew definitely uh, deserves credit for that because we often see uh, star centers especially at that point of their career take that kind of personally take it as a slight but um, it worked out for both of them and now the Kachuri has finally kind of that offensive upside has materialized for him and he's not just sort of like a trendy underlying stats darling and he's just basically a lock at this point for 30 goals and 70 points certainly helps him in this discussion um, all right let, let, let's bang through it who are, who are the next couple names on your list 
Uh, the next couple names on my list are very different, uh, but two of them are on the same team. Uh, Steven Stamkos, Ryan O'Reilly, and up at 11 is uh, Braden Point. So I had Steven Stamkos just off of this list. Um, he was one of my honorable mentions. Um, I have Why lot- do you hate goals? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can get into Stamkos here more, but I have uh, the other two guys quite a bit higher, actually. I have O'Reilly at eight, and I have Braden Point at six. Yeah, I think that's... It it's uh, not controversial. I, I think for me, it was between like numbers seven and twelve, where it was mostly interchangeable, and I moved guys around based on uh, either history of uh, consistently producing or where I thought things were uh, trending. So, like, I have uh, Sebastian Ajo one ahead of Braden Point. I think he's slightly better than Point, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of dock Point slightly for playing on such an incredibly good offensive team. Okay. So uh, you know he outproduced Ajo last year, but I think Ajo had to accomplish more to get those points. And I think uh, they're both really good defensively, but I don't think there's much separation there. So I, I gave Ajo a bit more credit, and for Ryan O'Reilly, I think he's incredible. Uh, Obviously, he was the MVP in the playoffs, uh, right. one of the best defensive players in the entire league. There's just so many good players here. I, I had trouble putting him higher. Yeah, maybe that's it. It has a little bit of recency bias, but I just think uh, I I love uh, guys that profile like him from the perspective of like he played. Just what I was saying about Couturier, where he can rely on him to play the heaviest of minutes against other teams' best players, and he still has such an insane penalty differential. I think there's so much value to that and you're right finally being put in the situation in the situation he was last year really allowed him to not necessarily thrive but kind of get more um deserved love for his play because he had that kind of national spotlight and because of the stanley cup run i feel like more people were kind of uh their eyes were open to what he's capable of so i had him where i did on my list Braden point um you know, it was interesting. I think uh, based on Evolving Wild's model, he was like fourth uh, best in goals above replacement last year. And, and you're right, based on the, playing on that team and playing with Kucherov in the year he had, it's kind of tough to separate those things or sort of give Braden Point the full credit for it because he was in such a great spot. But just based on um, the kind of the, the total package and the year, the player he was the year before he was playing with Kucherov and how effective he was in a different role and then sliding into that top power play. Uh, top line role and scoring 40 goals and it's just amazing that the Lightning were once again able to get away with paying him uh, on that ridiculous 6.75 mil per year bridge deal and making all of this work like I made this point on Twitter but we went into the summer thinking, okay, this is finally the year where the Lightning just have too many players making too much money. They're not going to be nearly as good next year. They're going to have to lose someone. And with all due respect to JT Miller, they basically, he was the only real tangible loss and they still got a future first round pick, which could be a high lottery pick and will be a great trade asset for them if they want to sort of replace any production down the road via trade. So the fact that it was like that, and then it was like Adam Erty, Ryan Callahan, and Dan Girardi, and those are the main players they lost, and they wound up making all the other numbers work and added Kevin Shattenkirk as a flyer and all this stuff. It's like, once again, the Lightning just pulling off cap wizardry and making it all work despite all of our concerns. Yeah, I, I honestly don't understand how the Lightning are able to do stuff like that. Like the Shattenkirk thing drives me crazy because he's a guy that, you know, continually maligned because he's not what people expect to be. And I think maybe uh, we're guilty as analytics people of overselling him a little bit. But 
and his numbers are still solid. Doesn't matter if you're going by goals or shots or expected goals. Like he gets results. He may not play the nicest looking game, and he may commit the odd really dumb turnover, but he's a good player. <laughs> and you know, yet another really good underrated defenseman that the Lightning have added. I guess they lose Strawman, but. You know, you can't keep the band together forever. And I think you have to give the Lightning credit as well for not overpaying to keep the band together. You know, they they lost players making a lot of money, but uh, I, I don't see how else they could have really navigated this summer any better. Yeah. When you look at that contract that Point signed and you're like, how does this keep happening? <laughs> like, you remember the Kucherov uh, bridge deal? That was insane as well. I think the point one might be crazier. Yeah, especially since uh, Matthew Kachuk, who we both love, obviously, and we'll talk about him when we talk about wingers, but basically signed the same deal for just a little bit more money, and he's a great player in his own right. But I don't know. They just they just make it work, whether it's, uh, you know, selling that culture of just a fun place to play with other great players the even though they haven't won a stanley cup the fact that they um, can sell that sort of vision as you could win a stanley cup here Um, i know everyone likes to make a ton of the tax breaks they get i'm not necessarily buying too much into that because we see other teams with similar tax breaks not taking as much advantage of it or not getting these types of deals so i i'm much more willing to give the front office credit and all the other stuff some more love as opposed to just crying about how it's unfair that they get this massive advantage compared to other teams yeah for sure i I think the tax breaks what a lot of people never bring up is like players play pay taxes in every state or province that they play in it's not just some you sign in a place and you pay that state tax and you know you pay half of your tax in that time but like there's tons of other factors uh, as to why lightning are able to do it and i think the biggest one is that the players that they talk to believe that they're a team that they're going to win the cup at least once, maybe multiple times. And that's the biggest factor when you talk to these guys of why they would want to go somewhere. It is. Well, and let's get to, uh, let's get to Stamkos a little bit here. Uh, you mentioned him. I had him just missing my list and you had him in your top 15. And I will say the one thing that I really liked to see from him last year was that he got back to being uh, that sort of just otherworldly shooter and goal scorer that we'd come to know and love. Uh, You know, he's probably never going to be the 60 goal scorer again, but the fact that, you know, he had scored 27 goals the year before while being healthy and his shot numbers were down, his efficiency had been down for a couple of years. And the fact that he got back up to, he had 234 shots on goal. He shot 19% um, and he scored those 45, as I mentioned, and, and came close to a hundred points just based on that absurd power play. He was also playing on, um, you're right. Maybe maybe I slighted him a little bit too much because he got back to being uh, that just that 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 shooter that we'd come to that we'd come to expect from him, and, and that's a massive um, sort of revelation considering the trajectory he was on in his age. Yeah, and I think one of the things that tips the scales for me to Stamkos in putting him on this list is that I really have a lot of respect for players who are able to diversify their games or change things about the way they play in order to either adapt to the way the, way the game's trending or uh, problems with their uh, personal play or, you know, changing team dynamics and Stamkos has kind of had to adjust for all three, right? He had that devastating injury that uh, kept him out of basically a full season when he broke his leg and had to have surgery on it. And then in the midst of that happening, all of a sudden Kita Kucherov 
came onto the scene and emerged as, oh, well, now he's the designated shooter on the team. He's the guy that the power play is going to run through. So sorry, Steven, you're coming back and you're still on the power play, but you're not the main guy anymore. So you have to learn how to be a, a secondary shooter and also a playmaker. And he really added a lot of passing to his game over the last couple of seasons. Uh, he's become a little bit of a better play driver, whereas earlier in his career, he was more of a, a Mark Shifley type where he would score like crazy, but things weren't always going in his team's favor when he was on the ice at five on five. He's better at that now, uh, was better two seasons ago than last season. But I attribute that to not playing with as good line mates this season. And you, uh, aren't playing with Braden point. You're probably going to have less good numbers Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the relative scale, right? It's just the, the problem with not being uh, a winger, I guess for Stamkos. But, uh, I think I, I appreciate a guy who can do that. And then he was able to mold those things into his game and then bring the shooting back, as you said. And that's super impressive to me. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, guys who've aged really gracefully, like uh, not necessarily Yarmar Yager, but like uh, Steve Eiserman became more of a defensive forward as uh, his career went on. Uh, There's always that narrative of him sacrificing the offense for defense. That I don't think that was true. I think he just aged out of being in his prime Mm -hmm. and you know had to figure out other ways to contribute. And I think Stamkos is kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, it's funny. Like last year, or the year before, I honestly thought that uh, he might be headed towards what we were just talking about, Claude Giroux, where the Lightning should explore moving him to the wing and whether that would open up more of his offense and whether he'd be a bigger net positive in that type of a role and and him sort of getting back to this high level um, opens so many doors for the lightning in terms of you know being able to just play a bunch of different players with him and clearly like it's it's much tougher to find centers than than wingers obviously and he had such a rotating door last year like there were times where Matthew Joseph who I love was playing up with them there was Andre Palat they they were they, they were kind of shuffling guys in and out of his line JT Miller so on and so forth and he just kind of kept chugging along and, and obviously still getting to play with Point Hedman and, and Kucherov on the power play and him having 40 of those 98 points in in that area of the game kind of helps juices numbers a little bit but the fact that he was still a productive player and still able to um carry his weight with less with inferior competition relatively speaking um help help kind of sway this in his favor so you're right maybe uh maybe i need to revisit that but um yeah i mean where are we at now on your list i feel like we're at the sort of like 11 range or so or have we already yeah, done all point was 11 okay. uh, and aho at 10 Okay, so I have Aho at 13 on my list. Um, where do you... So have you... Um, are we getting to Jack Eichel at, at some point? Or do you not have one on your list? Actually, I had Eichel on my honorable mentions. I just forgot to honorably mention him. Okay, so I... Just to kind of... For those scoring at home, I've got Pedersen at 15. I've got Eichel at 14. And we can get into him a little bit here. And then I've got Aho at 13. Uh, I've got Kopitar down at 12. And then I've got Kachiri at 11. Yeah, I, I think that's that makes sense to me. Well, so those are good. Do you want to do do you want to do Eichel a little bit here? Do you want to do yeah? Kopitar? Let's talk about Eichel. Yep. Uh, Eichel is surprising to me in that if you look at his individual contributions, he is a fantastic transition player, fantastic scoring chance producer, and then you look at his on ice results, and they're still kind of. Not good. And like you remove Ryan O'Reilly from the equation this year, and obviously there's going to be a bit of a bump in like the REL team numbers, but 
I think I just expect a bit more out of Eichel, and maybe that's unfair because it's judging based on like draft position and salary. You want him to be an out-and-out superstar across the board, and I just feel like he hasn't accomplished that yet. I think he's a great offensive player, and I definitely, if I was coaching against him, wouldn't be scared whenever he's on the ice because he can turn uh, some uh, nothing into something really quickly. But I'd like to see more two-way play from him still. That's fair. That that uh, is certainly fair. Maybe I'm uh, I'm buying in a bit too much. So just like how much I enjoy watching him play. And oh, he's maybe, one of the top watchable guys. And similar to Barzal, what, what we were talking about with him, like his ability, kind of like it, it is a little um, sort of Taylor Hallish as well. In that, like he does it all himself sometimes, and he's able to just go back and retrieve the puck and and flip the ice for his team. And clearly, he doesn't. Um, get nearly enough help although obviously he had a nice connection with skinner last year and and if you look at the numbers it, it isn't groundbreaking material to say that a team especially as thin as the sabers was a lot better with their best players on the ice than the other guys but like it was uh, a very uh, sizable drop off from like them actually being perfectly fine and holding their own when skinner and eichel were on the ice compared to yeah, when to they were terrible. where they were like the worst team in the league right and so yeah. uh Getting getting Marcus Johansson certainly helps a little, uh, quite a bit. They're hoping Casey Metalstat's going to develop. Sam Reinhardt's a really nice player. They've added a ton of blue liners that'll hopefully help in that transition game. And so if that's the case and you can get some more of that help, then I imagine it'll also help with getting some pressure off of them, maybe getting some easier minutes on occasion. And so I think there's still plenty of room there to grow, which excites me. Like I, I love the player already. And I think with his age and how long he's been in the league, there's still another couple of gears for him to hit as this Sabres team gets better around him and so i'm really encouraged by that and that's ultimately why i had him at 14 yeah and i think if you look at his career trajectory he's improved every single year he's been in the league Mm -hmm. which is a really good sign for for the sabers and also like if he ever has a good shooting year in terms of his like completion percentage or his uh, shooting percentage that's going to be scary for teams to deal with like he had 300 shots on net last year that's that's pretty good and he's only shot he's shot under 10 percent in his career that's that's crazy to me so you know if uh buffalo ever gets that good power play that they had two years ago and uh eichel ends up having a crazy shooting year like he's a guy who can push 40 i think i think so yeah i buy that um okay let's so so aho and, and kopitar here on, on my list i mean let's do aho because he uh he's already come up on your list and um you being in Montreal, you're obviously very, uh, very well versed or familiar with the name. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I like the fact that despite him having such a great year last year and, uh, you know, the Canes being a fun team that may obviously made it to the conference finals. And so he gained more, more notoriety there. And I don't think he's, uh, you know, still underrated per se. I feel like you kind of have to be uh, willfully ignorant at this point to not be aware of how good he is. Like if you're following the league at all, you're probably pretty aware of the fact that Sebastian Ajo is a superstar, but just that, that whole offer sheet saga and it involving the Habs and everyone really kind of uh, talking more about him and diving into the numbers, I feel like also helped him a little bit here in terms of um, winning over those, those final few kind of skeptics or people that still aren't fully aware of it. And, and he's a special player and he's reached that, uh, that highest level of playmaker or superstar, in my opinion, where, 
I feel confident saying that whoever Carolina put with him, and obviously, you know, Justin Williams is a nice player. Tara Vinan's an, an awesome player. Nito Niederreiter is a perfect fit beside him. But I feel like they could put anyone beside him, and that player would be significantly better because he just has that rare knack of making everyone that much better around him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can't overlook that last year was his first year at center as well, right? And all of us, like, I was skeptical that he was going to be able to translate all the things that made him great from winger to center. It's it's a tough thing to do. And, you know, right after having a, a breakout season where he pushed 30 goals to go into a, a whole new position that all of a sudden you have extra defensive responsibilities, it's, it's incredible that he had an even better season. And, you know, we can talk about his linemates being good, but I think if you look at Carolina and the fact that they've been a good team but not able to put it together for so long now, it really does seem like the tipping point for them in order to produce offense at a high rate or at least a rate commensurate with what they were producing in shots was Sebastian Ajo arriving on the scene. It seemed like he was the guy who had that elite-level talent to allow them to complete those plays, and that's huge. I think when you're a guy who you know stirs the drink like that that makes you really really important and it's crazy to think that he signed for less money than Mitch Marner yeah yeah <laughs> um that's a nice little little troll there Andrew um <laughs> sorry sorry I, I couldn't help it yeah no he's 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 a special player and and they did such a good job this summer of obviously um you know, they get Ryan Dezingle on a, on a nice little uh, low-risk deal. They trade for Eric Halla and take advantage of the fact that Vegas was in a big-time cap crunch. Uh, even the Justin Falk trade, who I think is overrated, they wind up getting Dominic Bach back, and it'll probably take a couple of years for him to make an impact at the NHL level. But he's just another, uh, you know, high upside, top prospect that I think could be a special player one day for them. And, and you just have to love what Carolina is doing in terms of assembling all this talent that's young and cost controlled and gives them a chance to not only prove that last year wasn't a fluke, but even build off of it and really take even another step. Yeah, for sure. And like the, the supporting cast there is getting better and better. And we haven't, we won't probably be talking about him right now, but uh, the uh, Svechnikov, factor in Carolina is also going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he barely played last year and still scored like a demon. So if it ever comes to a time where it's Aho and Sveshnikov together on the top line, uh, sorry, other teams, mm, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be tough. It sure will be. Um, Anze Kopitar, I had a 12 and I don't know. I feel like I was just probably giving him too much credit because of the career he's had and um, how special a player and how important a player he's been to the Kings. And maybe, I don't know, we can get into this. Maybe it's just the fact that it was just such a mess around him last year and he had so little to work with and all of the numbers across the board were terrible. But now that I look look at it even more and think about it even more, maybe I I was giving him a bit too much credit based on his resume because his numbers last year were, were pretty horrendous. Yeah, and it's the it's the second really rough year of the last three, and I feel like 2016-17 he had like still semi decent underlying numbers, and you if you dug into it you could see like okay this is because everyone around this guy is just crap, and the same could be said of last season, but I, I think that there is 
enough evidence out there now that at 32, uh, Kopitar's game is starting to slide a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, I don't think he was anywhere near as impactful defensively as we're used to. I mean, he had negative, negative relative uh, shot and goal, goal shares on a team that was horrendous, which is pretty alarming. Yeah, and I haven't taken a deep look at him on like Evolving Wilds uh, data to, to see if everything holds out there because I know that uh, there will be many listening who say, "Why are you guys using Rail Team when you could be using the yes. algorithm-driven stuff?" But I, I think for the average person listening, it, it's hard to get your head around there. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't impressed with Kopitar last year, and I actually was—I know a lot of people got on Drew Doughty last year for a down year for him, but I think. He fell off far less than Kopitar did. So of the two of them, like Kopitar is the one who slid down my list, and I didn't, I didn't even have him in my in my honorable mentions. Yeah, wow, I feel like an idiot now for having him this high. I, uh, it, it definitely fell uh, into the trap of just. I was like, well, for so long we've done these lists, and it's like Conte Kopitar just deserves to be yeah, there. Yeah, top five. And I don't want to be uh, overly reactionary. Like it's similar. I think if we were having this conversation, whatever, two years ago or whatever, when now to be fair, that was largely driven by the fact that he was incredibly unlucky with his shooting, and so his production wasn't there from a county stats level. And then last year or, or in twenty seventeen eighteen, he bounced back and scored a ton more. But he that wasn't the case last year. It looks like many more um, underlying concerns for him than just purely, Oh, he needs to convert more of his shots into goals. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at it right now in evolving wild. He, he was still uh plus 4.1 in terms of goals of probable placement, but that, that's not clearly good enough for uh, what we've come to expect from him. And also um, how high I've had him on the list and, and how much time we've spent talking about him. So I, uh, I apologize for that. Maybe I should, uh, I should revise this and bump him down, but you know, we're working through this together and, and this was a, a good learning exercise for me. It's okay. You're not the only one who will have some, uh, some players on out of reputation a little bit higher. Cause I've got one coming up here. All right, let's go for it. So we're, we're in, uh, we're in e- each of our top tens right now, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, wait, 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 let me cut you off. Let me, let's take a okay. quick break here from a sponsor. We're at the 45 minute mark and we will, uh, we'll pick this up top 10 after okay. this. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey Pedio Cast is SeatGeek. Do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's like they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. You go on their website, uh, it's annoying, it doesn't have the events you're looking for, you're opening up a bunch of tabs, uh, you're unsure if you're getting ripped off or if you're going to buy a ticket and then show up to the event and it's going to be a fake one and you're going to wind up having wasted your money and wasting your time. And we don't want that because I know you, everyone listening to this show is living a busy, fulfilling, fun life and you need to maximize your time. And... That's where Seeky comes into the mix because they pride themselves on their customer and user experience, but also on the fact that they're going to have what you're looking for and they're going to save you time, money, and effort in doing so. So you can search SeatGeek, whether it's for a sporting event, whether it's for live music, whether it's comedy, whether it's whatever else. SeatGeek's got the tickets you're looking for all in one place. And to make matters better, they actually are going to do all the work for you. They're going to scour the web. They're going to pull all the tickets that are available for whatever event you're looking for. And then they're going to grade them on a scale of one to 10. And they're going to map them out on an easy to use interactive map that shows the good deals as green dots and the bad deals that are overpriced as red dots. And every purchase with them is fully guaranteed. So if you buy a ticket with them, you can do so rest assured with confidence that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. I've got the Seeky app on my phone and I've found time and time again, it's the fastest and easiest way to find tickets. I use it all the time if I'm going to a hockey game as a fan, if I'm 
traveling and I can watch a basketball game or if there's a concert coming up I was using that a bunch this summer so now with sports season really kind of kicking into high gear here and so many good things to check out now's the time to finally take the leap and give SeatGeek a shot if you haven't so already and to sweeten the pot and make things even better SeatGeek is going to give you $10 off your first purchase with them just for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO Guest. All you need to do is use our promo code and let them know we sent you. So download the SeatGeek app today and use the promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code for PDO off your 10 purchase. Now let's get back to the show. All right, let's do it. Give me your top 10. All right. You want to go the whole top 10? No, no, that's too many names. Let's, uh, okay, we'll do me, three maybe. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I have at number nine, John Tavares. Uh, number eight, this is my one that uh, reputation kept him up higher, Malkin. Nice. And number seven, Patrice Bergeron, who it pained me to bring him that far down, but there's the, the top of this list is so tight. You know, it's really tough. So uh, yeah, Malkin was my guy that his history is just so strong that I couldn't punish him too much for a down season. Okay. And I, I know I had him last year at, I think, number two because oh, he was so yeah. good. But, uh, yeah, six spots was the most – or I guess I, that's actually number seven. Six spots was uh, the most that I could drop him. I've got Malkin at 10, so I'm right there with you. I've got Tavares at nine, and I've got Bergeron at five. So we're kind of on the same wavelength here. And you're right, when I was pulling out this list, like it, it used to be you'd go like – you know, Crosby one, one or two, and then you'd be like, okay, now I need to start thinking about Malkin. And there were just so many other younger uh, players that are coming off much better seasons, quite frankly. And, and we'll see. It, it, it sounds like uh, he's certainly motivated to prove that last year wasn't uh, a sign of the end for him as that top five center. Um, I don't know what was going on there with Phil Kessel, but by all accounts, uh, it was certainly a, a, an unpleasant relationship or there was some friction involved and I don't know how much of that played into it. So we'll see. I, I imagine that Alex Delchenyuk is going to get the first crack at playing with him. Um, it's quite an interesting year. He certainly has a lot to prove, but I just think based on... I'm willing to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt here to a degree because it was just that one bad year compared to like Kopitar, for example, we were just talking about. So he can certainly, if we put him at like 15 or something or he left him off this list, uh, we could really wind up looking foolish for that because I do still believe that he has one more, at least uh, truly elite season in him. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think when you just, it's hard to watch Malkin and not think this is a hyper elite player. You know, it, it's, I mean, I guess it's like looking at a five-year-old Ferrari, right? And like, maybe he's not the best car out, out there on the road anymore. And it's design has been surpassed by other competitors, but man, it, it still rips. Uh, when Malkin has the puck and he's bearing down, and he's angry. He's still one of my favorite players in the league to watch. So there's that bias as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've said it before on this show, but give me Evgeny Malkin's peak A game uh, against anyone else's when he has a cooking. Like he, he has the highest gear, I think, in terms of just complete dominance. Where every time he gets on the ice, you're just like, oh my god, here comes a goal! Like they, yeah, the you can see like, cannot, they look like children against them. Yeah, you can see the defensemen like just rolling their eyes, like, oh, we have to deal with this again. Come on. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I really do hope the Galchenyuk thing works out. Obviously, and we have to give Crosby credit for this, but he's really found. 
that nice connection with Gensel and they're, they're kind of running mates now and they're basically just attached to the hip uh, at 5-1-5 and, and I love Malkin throughout his career has had so many moving pieces and such a rotating cast of characters that have played with him and, and hopefully uh, this is the year that both Galchenyuk uh, kind of lives up to the hype and proves that he's worth all the buzz and all the attention he's gotten and Malkin proves that uh, he still has it. Yeah, that, that that would be fun, and I think it'd be good for like a guy like Galchenyuk to finally get a stable situation as well. It seems like it's been ever since his like rookie year that he's been bounced around as well. So some stability there would not hurt either player. So Tavares at nine. Um, I don't really know with some of these guys as we get closer to the top ten, and people are going to be like, "Oh, why'd you spend?" 40 minutes talking about guys who are worse than, than these guys we're going to spend like 10 minutes just breezing through. But with some of these names, I just don't know what there is to really say from like a revelatory, um, yeah. mind-blowing perspective. It's like, he's a great player. He went from a weird situation on the Islanders where they were really good offensively, but it was just a mess to uh, this high octane offense where he was playing with one of the best playmakers in the world. And they clearly had chemistry right out of the gate. I think they combined for the most uh, primary assist goal combo between the two of them. And, and so, yeah, it's like Mitch Marner passing the puck to John Tavares is magic and they were great. And I fully expect another 40 ish goals from him this year and kind of just pencil that in and move on. Yeah, for sure. I, I think he's another one of those guys that has diversified his game over time. And I, I wondered if he was going to be able to fill the role that uh, JVR did on the Leafs power play and, and be the net front guy because he's been more of the, the the trigger man on the half wall for most of his career in Carolina. Or not, sorry, <laughs> Carolina, in Long Island. But, you got Sebastian uh, Ajo on the mind. Yeah, Sebastian Ajo on the mind. And uh, I'm not the only person in Montreal with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was able to do that and then some. He recorded more high-danger scoring chances last year than anybody else in the league. And <laughs> it was crazy what he was able to do with that lineup. And even though their power play kind of struggled down the stretch, uh, overall, it was the most dynamic power play in the league by the numbers. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him even better what he did last year. Yeah, and it's terrifying that... Uh he's not even the uh, the best center on his own team, which speaks yeah. to uh, the Leafs clearly have some flaws in their game, but I think this is why people keep coming back to them as uh, as a team that has more more to uh, another another gear to hit here if they can get away or finally get past the uh, past the Bruins. But let's, uh, I guess, well, that's a good transition. Let's do Bergeron then. I've got him five on my list. You have him at, at seven, I believe you were saying. Um, uh, six. Six. I just uh, realized that I misnumbered the list, so. I mean, what is there to say at this point like i i do think especially in the playoffs his usage was a bit weird where it felt like despite the fact that they always they came within one game of winning the stanley cup again um his minutes were all over the place it felt like and they weren't relying on him as much as you expect them to given their success and given his caliber of play and and there are some nagging injury concerns there where it does feel like he's always kind of nursing something but man um he just his impact and also you know you're you're, you're talking about uh Tavares, for example, how like, oh, he's added another uh, layer or element to his game. Bergeron's kind of like, he's done so as well, but in the opposite direction where he's become this like elite goal scorer as well yeah. to all the defensive stuff, which is, uh, is something you typically don't see at this stage of a player's career, especially without 
giving up defensive value. Like it's not like he's just going for broke and, and just cherry picking and uh, completely neglecting the defensive zone to try and score more cheapy goals. Like he's just doing it all now and he's just, he's a freak. Yeah. Um, Boston they're They don't make sense. Uh, him or Marshawn. Marshawn all of a sudden hit his peak at like 30 years old. Doesn't make sense at all. Uh, Bergeron goes from like a, a good scorer to a consistent 30 goal guy by being a extremely effective shutdown center who also is the net front guy. <laughs> like he just there's no guy in the league who plays as much. Like, like we talk about 200 foot game, but I, if it was possible, Bergeron would play like a 205 foot game. Like he goes so deep, he commits so fully, and then he. He's still the first one back. It's it's crazy. Uh, I have very few words left to describe how good this guy is, and the fact that you know at 34 years old, it doesn't appear on the surface like there's much slowing down for him. Nope, it does not. Uh, I guess yeah, health is really the only concern. Hopefully, uh, he can stay on the ice because once he's on there, he uh, he certainly makes a difference. Maybe they should try some load management. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they certainly should, at least with uh, with Chara, if not him as well. Um, okay, let's keep let's keep going here. So, uh, I guess we're in your like top five now. Yeah, yeah. So above Bergeron, which was uh, I had Bergeron, I think at five last year at four, but I bumped him down for uh, Nate McKinnon, who I wanted to see him repeat what he was able to do two seasons ago last year, and then he was like, "All right, fine, I'll do even better." Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, Nate McKinnon, I think we can officially say is a superstar now, and those couple seasons after his first. Uh, after his rookie season where he kind of didn't score as much wore the blip and this is the real Nathan McKinnon man that kid is so incredible Uh, his ability to score off the rush is almost second to none the only guy I think who is more dangerous is Connor McDavid wait so count down your uh, your top five for me here okay so I have McKinnon Matthews Barkov Crosby McDavid all right so that's interesting I've got Barkov at seven and we can get into him here and then I've got um point at six Bergeron at five and then I've got Matthews four McKinnon three Crosby two McDavid one um and obviously with these guys it it is nitpicking you know it's interesting with the Barkov thing um he finished fifth in Selkie voting last year and I actually thought that was a bit of a a reputation thing uh I did not think that he was as good defensively last year but that could just be that could just be the case that uh you know, that, that Panthers team was such a mess defensively as a whole that it's kind of tough to to separate those two things. You clearly want to see more from their best defensive player, or their best defensive forward. But um, I did think he certainly wasn't uh, without blame for that mess in front of the goaltending. Yeah, and, and I think there seemed a point last year for Florida where uh, Barkov and Huberto were just like, you know what, Let, let's just get all the points. And they they were absolutely dominant offensively, and the defensive play definitely suffered for both of them. But every time that I go through data and I'm looking at stuff that I know is important, Barkov's name is always, always in like the top five or ten on every single stat. It's crazy how thoroughly excellent he is across every facet of the game and i think outside of prime bergeron he's the only guy that i've seen like this uh maybe crosby for a time but crosby was just like more elite in the offensive categories and uh, a little bit further behind on the defensive areas but barkov just he does 
everything you could possibly want and imagine a center to to do, and he does them all extremely well. Uh, he doesn't have any glaring weaknesses, and I don't know. I think there's something to be said for a guy that maybe he's not a um, like he might not ever have 96 points again, right? Like last year might be a crazy 20 point aberration off of what his prime numbers will be. He might be a 75 point guy throughout it, but he's a guy that any team could slot into any system and he could be a first line center. Yep. No, that is uh that's certainly the case. And, and we forget that, uh, I mean, obviously, um, McKinnon was in the same draft class, but still at, at such a young age for him to have already hit this level and be in this conversation. And that's for how to have these expectations for him. Like when I say that I thought he wasn't deserving of a fifth place Selkie vote and, and that he was to blame a little bit for their defensive woes, like that's all relatively speaking compared to the sky high uh, norms that we've set for him because yeah, exactly. he's just that damn good. And so I, I bumped him down a little bit just because of that, but um, I fully expect that next year, uh, he'll get back into form and be inside this top five. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned McKinnon already. I had him at number three. Um, I felt really good about that. Like I, I didn't really consider bumping him down any further. It was, it was impossible for him to bump into the McDavid Crosby tier for me at this point, but man, he was obviously the big winner of last year's postseason, despite the fact that his team didn't even make it to the conference final because everyone just got to watch him closely on a nightly basis. And he w- took his game to another freakish level. He was just the volume of minutes he was playing uh, at the energy or pace that he was playing it at and the force he was exerting and how like the sharks for example were just like so spooked by him that they were going to such extremes to just try and corral him as much as they could and it actually worked as the series went along and maybe he just wore down because of the um unrealistic minutes that he was being asked to play and energy to exert but man he uh He's unlike anyone else in terms of that sort of speed power combo. Like McDavid's still the fastest player in the league, but that downhill attack of McKinnon's when he gets a full head of steam is the most frightening thing a defender can see, I imagine. Yeah, it's like you can kind of, not to say that McDavid is in any way easy to defend, but you can kind of clip him and knock him off of his stride, and McKinnon just seems to bowl through guys a little bit like uh, Prime Malkin did. And, you know, the crazy thing is McKinnon is not even that big. He's only six foot, 200 pounds, but he plays like, he looks out there like he's 6'4". You know, he it's it's weird to see a, a guy who's able to, to overcome that, so ridiculously it's not just like oh that's a small player who's really getting it done not to be small but he just feels like a big player and you know to his credit it it, it seems a bit counterintuitive but i remember um a couple years ago there this article came out and it was really well written about how um you know the houston uh rockets had identified james harden when they traded for him as being able to hit another gear offensively because of his ability to decelerate at um just like the a league best rate and how he was able to draw fouls and how kind of maneuver and keep defenders off balance because of his ability to be going full speed and then all of a sudden stop on a dime and maintain control and do stuff with the ball. And McKinnon's sort of similar to me where he still clearly has that straight line speed and power where sometimes he will just put his head down and go to the net. But early in his career, he was doing that every single time and yeah. it became a bit more predictable from like, 
you don't obviously want to see it or have to defend it as a as as a as a guy who has him coming down at you full speed but it made it easier to kind of work the angles or for goalies to know what to expect and then now he still does that but on occasion i think he's the best of the league at stopping short and then waiting to hit the the trailer that's coming in on the rush or allowing passing lanes to materialize and i think that's what's taken his game to another level especially as a distributor where He's so multifaceted now that with that speed, you can't really uh, cheat at all because he's realized that he can get away with taking a bit off of his fastball to get more out of his talent. Yeah, and, and I'm sure it also helps to have a guy like Miko Ranton in there that he can play off of a bit more. And uh, I've kind of espoused the opinion, and I'm still of it, that Rantanen is a really good player, but McKinnon kind of makes him a great player. But at the same time, having a really good player with you to, to compliment you when you're a talent of the level of McKinnon's is a huge boon that he didn't have consistently, at least uh, for most of his career in Colorado. So it's it's like a, everything coming together at the right time. Absolutely. Uh, which is great to see because everyone now talks about how he's on like the most team friendly deal in the league that's not on an ELC and he certainly is. But there was a time there, I think people kind of conveniently forget it now where we were a bit concerned about the fact that the, especially the, the counting stats weren't there, that his shooting percentage was depreciated for the first three years of his career or so. And, and we were wondering, we all knew he was going to be good, but just how great he would be and, He's lived up to all of the of the, all of the prospect hype and all of the, and him going first overall and and now he's uh I have him as the third best center in the league so it's a testament to him uh, growing into that player. Um, Matthew's at four. You know, I still have concerns, obviously dating back to last postseason about the usage. Um, I think the Leafs can sometimes get a bit too cute when it comes to overthinking stuff and the data science and i know it's a bit counterintuitive because i love when teams do that obviously and i think every team should be doing it and should be adopting the load management model especially with their older stars of the nba and, and not asking these guys to play 82 hard games because it's tough to do so and still have uh, your peak game in the postseason but with matthews at his age and his effectiveness on a per minute basis as a fan it is a bit infuriating to see him come in at that like 18 minute a game mark every night without fail when you feel like a couple more minutes and his production could just be that much better yeah it's it's one of those things where i understand the load management and sports science part of it and if you want him to average around 18 nine minutes 19 minutes a game it makes sense but when you're really up against it and you need to win maybe play him 22 yeah you know, like it's not going to kill him to go all out one game and there are diminishing returns sometimes. Sure. But I feel like one game isn't where you get those diminishing returns. No. And we, I mean, look at the halves last year. They're like, if we're going to lose, we're going to go down with McKinnon playing 26 minutes. And, yeah, uh, exactly. And I, and I sometimes love to see that. Like if you're going to lose, just go down with your best players. And, and he's, you know, on a per minute basis. Um, I think, I think he still has been the most efficient goal scorer since he's entered the league. And yeah, Last year, we finally got to see him uh, unleashed in the power play, which was great. And unsurprisingly, he was very good at scoring goals there, too. And it sounds like he's added uh, some more versatility to his shot making this summer, which is scary to think about with, uh, you know, potentially adding an arsen- uh, a one-timer to his arsenal on the power play. And so the sky's the limit there, from a, especially in a goal-scoring goal perspective, where... 
I still think despite all the concerns and despite last year, line A kind of seems like that natural era parent to Ovechkin as just like the guy who's putting up video game goal totals year on and year out. But if the usage can ever get there and if he keeps trending in this direction and if he can stay healthy because he has missed whatever 15 or so games in each of the past two years, um, Matthew seems like one of these years he's going to pop off for just an obscene goal total and win, win the Rocket Richard. Yeah, I think that's pretty much inevitable as long as he can stay healthy. I mean, uh, the only person to put up more scoring chances at even strength than him last year was Brennan Gallagher. And, you know, I, I love Gallagher. I have all the time for him in the world as a player. But he doesn't have the shot that Matthews does. You know, like very, very few players do. And Matthews is part of the elite group of only four players in the NHL last year who put up uh, or who created over 10 scoring chances per 20 minutes for their teammates. The rest of that list is McDavid, Crosby, and McKinnon. So it kind of tells you what we're dealing with with that player. And I think, if anything, he can work a little bit more on his transition game. I think the first few years of his career, he really over-relied on William Nylander to move the puck up the ice for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got a little bit better at it last year, but I think part of the struggles that that line had at even strength was that Matthews just wasn't a great puck mover. And he, he isn't slow, per se, but he doesn't have incredible skating. And... I think he needs to uh, be a little bit more Yagerish, uh, move the puck a bit better, be stronger on his skate, stronger on his stick, and find a way to dangle through guys. Because I'm sure you remember when all the stuff was coming out about zone entries, when Eric Tulski was working on uh, what's important and who gets it done before there was like a lot of publicly tracked data, it was like consistently Yarmor Yager was up at the top and creating these zone entries. And everyone was like, how can this guy do that when he skates like a dump truck? <laughs> And it's just being creative and being elusive. And I think Matthews has all the skill in the world to do that. He just hasn't had to or hasn't done it so far. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and we're still so early in his career that it's uh, it'll probably happen as as similar yeah. to what we were talking about with McKinnon uh, when he figures Sky's out limit. Some, some of that stuff and some of the tricks of the trade. Crosby at two for me. Uh, nothing really to say. I mean, I, I was amazed that he really had like a vintage throwback season not that he'd struggled in the past but i didn't really expect him to have that kind of another gear in him where i thought he there was a very strong case to be made that he was the most valuable player and and clearly he got shut down in the playoffs by the islanders as the penguins did it as a whole and islanders that to a lot of teams and a lot of great players last year but i still think over the 82 games just his on ice impacts and how good the penguins were with him compared to without him um he still has it. And, and and he also, the encouraging thing to me is, you know, you mentioned Yager there, assuming he wants to keep playing and assuming he physically holds up, like, I don't think he can be this great, but Crosby could do this for, I think, as long as he wants in terms of being that guy, especially below uh, the goal line where it's like, good luck getting the puck from him and his big booty when he's just boxing you out <laughs> and surveying the, the landscape like a quarterback and just uh, dishing the puck to whoever is open. So I think he could do that for as long as he wants. And, and I hope he does because uh, I really enjoy watching him play. Yeah. And I, I think to the, to the booty comment to continue along the trend of talking about butts, I don't think it's controversial to say, to say that outside of Crosby, the penguins were ass last year, right? Like they were just not good. And I think that's what's, was most impressive about his season. It wasn't just that he had his first 100-point season since 2014. It was that he was able to accomplish that and drive play like crazy while the rest of his team was really not showing up. And I, I thought that 
it, it like you said it was vintage crosby but it was almost like he had to find that extra gear again that he kind of seems to hold for the playoffs right. and maybe doing that all season long just to drag the penguins kicking and screaming into the playoffs is why he was able to be shut down so easily in the postseason and the penguins got swept he must have just been exhausted so maybe i wouldn't expect like you said, another season like that um, necessarily, but I, I I think eighty points is entirely reasonable as an expectation, even ninety, as long as the Penguins are a little bit better this year, and uh, you know he'll probably save himself for the playoffs again. But I, I thought just in terms of like as an interesting story, it was incredible to see Crosby pick that team up by himself essentially last year and dragged them to uh, not the promised land because they didn't make it very far, but they got a ticket to the promised land. I mean, if he just had like an average season, even for his caliber that he'd had in the couple years prior, like I don't think they would have made the playoffs. I mean, they were, things were that bleak and and as much big booty energy as he has, even uh, his tank gets (laughs) depleted after a while, especially at this age. So yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously it goes back to our conversation of if Malkin, can get back to his form, that would go a long way towards preserving Crosby and not having to uh, to ask as much of him. Now with McDavid, uh, as we close out this list here, so he played 78 games last year, um, missed four of them, and that includes the last game of the season when he got injured, and I forget the exact totals in terms of when that happened or, or what the goal share was like, but he either scored or directly assisted 42-plus percent of the team's total goals despite missing those games and that is just it's so obscene and i understand ken holland kind of had his hands tied because of the stink bomb that peter shirelli had left for him and he couldn't do that much this summer but i don't think the additions of josh archibald uh riley sheehan marcus granland james neal and Joachim nygaard are gonna put this team over the top so unfortunately i expect you know, if they have better health, uh, I think they're going to be better. Um, but to which degree, who knows? And the question for me is, how much better can Connor McDavid conceivably get? It seems scary to think that he could get better, but he keeps he keeps doing so. And at this age, it seems like I don't know. I don't know how he would get better, even, but or what he could work on in his game, or if you have an answer to that. But man. Um, He's the best player in the world, and I don't want to hear any arguments about him making teammates better or them not making the playoffs. They're all just so stupid and unfounded. And if you don't think he's the best player in the world, I uh, I don't care about your opinion because you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe his defensive game could use a little bit of work. Uh, I feel like it was better a couple of years ago, but I don't know if that's necessarily him or just that the Oilers are getting worse. You know, it, I know that it's a transition period for them and they're trying to figure out a way out of this like cap hell situation that Chiarelli got them into. But man, it, it looks so bleak outside of McDavid, Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins. And if Clef bombs healthy, because like even some of the guys who were bright spots last year, like I don't have a lot of faith in faith in Darnell nurse. Um, you know, James Neal might bounce back as a goal scorer, but he's not going to help them in terms of like five on five, play driving he's just not that player anymore all the guys they added like you said are like low end depth i like marcus granlin at least is a consistent bottom line player but he's going to be asked to play too many minutes most likely you know alex chason is probably going to have a huge drop off from last year sam Gagne might help 
but again, mostly a power play guy. So maybe the Oilers will transition into being this like really scary power play team that you just can't take penalties on. And that's what allows Connor McDavid to unleash at five on five. But I don't know. There's very little positivity here for me <laughs> looking at like when you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl on your top line and daily face off using Corsica's ratings still has it as the third best line in the league. You're like, how are <laughs> how did you find a player so bad that you're the third best line? <laughs> how are you not the best? Like you could put a mid mid range middle six guy on there and you'd be the best. There's nobody else that should be able to challenge that. But no, they found Zach Cassian. Yeah, it's a uh, man. It's it, it's a mess. And, and and the hilarious thing to me too is it's like oh you're clearly not going to be able to match McDavid speed. Although by all accounts, uh, this Nygaard guy they're bringing in from the Swedish league is a blazer himself, and maybe he gets up there uh, eventually. But it's like they've got. Marcus Granlund and, um, you know, Alex Chason on their third line, their second lines got James Neal and Sam Gagne. And it's like, could you, are they like intentionally throwing a change up here to teams where it's like, you see McDavid speed and then you bring out the slowest guys possible. And then you're like, Seriously? the team's just going to be like dizzy and thrown off guard because of the difference between those two speeds. Like that seems like the only possible rationale here. Cause they couldn't have picked a worse fit. McDavid's life is essentially the climax to Fast Five, where it's like the race car pulling the giant steel safe along a street. Yeah. That That's the Edmonton Oilers right there. Great climax to an action movie, but maybe not a very good hockey team. Mm, yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, we did it. We, I think the centers are the, uh, are the toughest position to rank just because there's so many great players and you have to nitpick so much that it's kind of tough to, to differentiate. I guess when we do wingers and defensemen, there's like a higher volume of names to consider, but um, it, it, you, you'll get less pushback because the 16th best guy, uh, no one's going to quibble too much about it. Whereas the 16th best center that doesn't make it on our list, people are like, what are you talking about? He's so great. And that's just, uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, you say that, but uh, I don't know. Going through the wingers, I actually had trouble narrowing it down. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to do that on the next show. Uh, plug some stuff. Uh, tell people where they can find you this season and uh, what you're working on now that you're back in the saddle. Uh, back in the same spot I was last year. I'm at uh, Sportsnet three times a week and the Winnipeg Free Press uh, once or twice a week, depending on how busy Winnipeg gets. So uh, that's where you can find me um, and I guess on Twitter. That's pretty much it. You can find me on Twitter. That that is depressing. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Andrew Berkshire. I'm I'm not on there as much as usual. I, I kind of cut back the last couple of years for my sanity. Yeah, but when the games get going, it's fun to. Uh, I find it's fun to follow along and see what's happening. Um, all right, man. Twitter's fun. It's real fun. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. It's best days are very very good. Um. This was a blast, man. I'm glad we got to do this and look for uh, you and I to do the wingers and the defensemen uh, coming up soon. Absolutely. Let's get to it. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast.